Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. This evening we continue our sermon series, A Summer in the Psalms. Each week we are looking at a different psalm. And as you likely know, there are a variety of different types of poems in the Psalter. Several weeks ago, we explored a wisdom psalm, Psalm 1. Last week, Psalm 8, a psalm of creation. Tonight, Psalm 105. It's a historical psalm, a psalm of remembering. Now, you'll be relieved to hear that I don't intend a verse-by-verse exposition of all 44 verses this evening. That would... uh, take quite a while, but rather I'd like to consider two interrelated themes that emerge from this psalm, the theme of praising and remembering, praising and remembering. This psalm helps us reorient us, it helps to reorient us in both of these. It helps that we might praise aright because we remember rightly. And I think this is crucial because we as human beings have a tendency toward forgetfulness. At least I do. I had this main plane in a kind of comical way a number of years ago, shortly after I was ordained, and I, I began my calling as a new priest down in South Carolina. Part of the adjustment was adapting to a whole new wardrobe. You know, wearing black clothes with a plastic collar around your neck isn't, isn't the most comfortable attire, and especially in the summers of South Carolina. And I have the picture of my brother-in-law, Jake Jeffress, who borrowed some of my clergy attire yesterday for a clue party and, and had it on. And I thought, wow, he makes it look good. But, uh, but I think it was my first or second week as a curate there at St. Helena's. I was newly ordained, very wet behind the ears, and... My first clergy collar was still rather stiff, and and the black shirt was crisp. It was Jeff, the rector's day off, and uh, but a parishioner had been rushed to the ER. So on his day off, he came into the office, and and a both we both of us went away to the hospital. So we arrive, and we headed right for the ambulance doors. You know the the doors that say restricted access only authorized personnel only. And he turned to me as we're walking in, and he says, "Uh, Chad, you're going to have to go to the desk. I don't think they'll let me in. And the words caught me off guard. I thought to myself, why in the world would they let me in and not him in? And it was as these words were flashing in my mind that I looked to my left, and there was a door, one of those doors that's kind of mirror-like. And I looked there, and I saw, oh, there's Jeff. And then I thought, oh, there's a handsome, debonair clergyman. And, and then I realized, oh, that's me. Like, that, that's, that's me. I'm in this stuff. And then it dawned on me, oh, that's why they let me in. I'm in clericals. Now, mind you, I had been in clericals all day long. People had seen me in that attire, but it was the, the bulb went on, not realizing how others perceived me. 
And, and that goes to show you the way we often think of ourselves is not in keeping with how others perceive us. We don't often see ourselves the way that others see us, and we don't often perceive reality uh, the way that reality is. We often don't perceive things correctly. We, we can be forgetful. And the same forgetting is true collectively. Culturally, we can, we can be forgetful. Uh, I recently, I heard a speaker lamenting that now we live in the midst of a teenage culture. He says we are, we're in a teenage culture. And what he meant by that is we have a limited scope and understanding of who we are and where we've come from. That we're bound to the now and to immediate gratification as a culture. And that we lack a broader experience, a broader perspective born of experience. And I had several thoughts. First of all, that seemed very offensive to, and uh, an insult to the teenagers that I, that I know and, and uh, who, well, who don't live in that world. But having said that, I think his diagnosis was, was on, was spot on. Culturally, we seem to have a very distinct case of amnesia. Forgetful of our history, of who we are, forgetful of God. And we're not the first culture to have such a malady. Enter Psalm 105. We're not told the human author, though the first 15 verses I will note are found word for word in 1 Chronicles and were sung as the ark was brought into Jerusalem by David. Those same 15 verses, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, tell the peoples what thing he has done. Oh, let your songs be of him, praise him, let your speech be of all his wondrous works. So as a psalm opens, we are told to do a lot of things here, aren't we? At least 10 of them. We are told to give thanks, call upon, tell, sing, praise, speak, rejoice, rejoice again, seek, seek again, remember, remember again, remember again. Uh, to some commentators, all of these things that we're told to do come across as a bit bossy. A lot to do here. Uh, to C.S. Lewis, some of these imperatives, particularly the call to praise, served initially as something of a stumbling block. He writes, he's got a really helpful little book, Reflections in the Psalms, great for a summer in the Psalms, I'd recommend it, but he writes this, when I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God, still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or deceitfulness, or delightfulness, rather. We despise all the more the crowd of people round every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus, a picture at once both ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way, with their call to praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise Him. 
Is God someone who just desperately needs our praise and attention to feel good about himself? Now, see this, and you're shaking your head, and I agree. That was very perceptive. Uh, no, I don't think so either. But Lewis wrestles through these thoughts that he's having. And it's well worth the read, but I'll just draw out a few keys for you. First, we would agree that there are certain objects, both in nature and in art, that everyone in their right mind would say deserve, merit, perhaps even demand admiration. So, when we encounter one of these objects, to, to admire that object is simply to be awake. It, it is, is to be attuned to reality. And to encounter it and not admire, we would agree that person is either asleep, unhealthy, deeply ill, something's wrong, and, and they're missing out. Uh, at dinner the other night, for example, some friends told us about some young relatives who came to visit them from a vibrant, entertainment-filled large city. And so here they were in rural western PA, and their attitudes reflected what they thought about being here. But they went on a hike in a narrow gorge with cliffs and rocks to climb upon and a stream rolling by, and it was as if they said as if they were waking up. They became alive at the reality and an admiration, and their attitude was reflected in the same. Now, Lewis doesn't stop here, though. He goes on to note that he then, as he wrestled through this call to praise, he said that all enjoyment seems spontaneously to overflow into praise. And so Lewis says the world rings with praise. We praise food, or at least I do, weather, at least sometimes around here, children, colleges, flowers, teams, cars, vacation places, movies, scholars, books, sometimes even politicians. We are bent toward praise. He goes on to say, and the humbler and the healthier we are, the more the praise tends to flow. And the cranky and the more malcontent we are, the praise tends to dry up. So, for example, in my line of work, the humble teacher, marked by love for her students, praises them often. And she is able to see and highlight that which is good in them and their work, and it for what it, and because of that, it elicits even higher things out of them. While the burnout, tired, cranky teacher who needs a summer break is never satisfied. Even the top students can't seem to do it all that well. And the praise dries up and the room feels tense and cold. And so Lewis makes the point that very often, Praise seems to make inner health audible. And I like that phrase. Inner health is made audible through praise. And so it causes me to reflect, am I praising? What am I praising? Now, one more observation that Lewis realized about praising is that praising doesn't find its full consummation its true fulfillment 
until it's expressed to another person. Which is to say, it's frustrating to enjoy a great bite, bite of food and not be able to tell another how amazing it is. It's frustrating to throw an ace in disc golf and have no fellow players with whom to celebrate. I think of a practice recently. We had a student, uh, uh, it was after practice, he was out there throwing the disc. Some of us were hanging out in the pavilion. He threw it on hole two. It went straight into the basket. The first thing he did was this. You know the second thing he did? He looked around. And he saw me. Did you see that, Reverend Lawrence? Yes, Tommy, I saw it. That was amazing. Now, that would not have found its full consummation had we not had the opportunity to share that remarkable shot. Or as Lewis puts it, uh, you're driving and suddenly at the turn of the road you come upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, but then you have to keep silent because the people you are in the car with care for it no more than they do a tin can in a ditch. The enjoyment finds its expression, its fullness in calling others into it. So when the psalmist calls us to praise the Lord, They're doing what we all do when we speak about something we care about. The psalmist is one who has beheld the beauty, tasted the goodness, experienced the wonder of the one who is most beautiful, true, and good. And having tasted, having seen, having experienced, the praise flows forth. And the call to issue, the call to others to come is issued. Give thanks. Sing, sing praises to him. Now, what does the psalmist see in Psalm 105 that elicits such call to praise? What does he encounter? Well, as I noted, this is a historical psalm. A psalm of telling how God has dealt with his people in the past. And so we read in verses 7 to 44 a history. More than likely, you've heard it before. Perhaps many times. Perhaps you've heard it so many times that you glazed over a bit when we read all 44 verses a few minutes ago. Perhaps if you were retelling it, you might have included some other highlights from Genesis and Exodus. And perhaps you noticed that the history is, is quite theocentric. It's, it's really God-focused. He, as in capital He, referring to God, appears more times than I was willing to count. Because the psalmist wants us to remember the marvelous things that he has done, the works he has wrought. You might think, what about the Israelites? Well, I I would just let you know that there is a second half of this psalm. It's Psalm 106. It has a slightly different historical focus. In that psalm, the pronoun he is replaced with the pronoun they. And so you'd read things like, they forgot, they made a calf, they complained, they served idols, (laughs) and so on. But even there, the psalmist calls for praise. In that case, praise for God's faithfulness and steadfast love to even a rebellious people. But I don't preach on that. I preach on Psalm 105 that calls us to remember that God is faithful and he's sovereign. 
faithful and sovereign. He is the Lord who looked out upon the peoples of the earth and made for his first round draft pick an old man from an indistinct group of people. He looked out upon the face of the earth and of all he chose, he chose Abraham, a childless man married to a barren woman, Sarah, both of old age. And to those two, he made a promise. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is that who we would have chosen? Probably not, but it was who he chose. And to this same man the Lord made a covenant to your offspring, and he had none at that point. To your offspring I give you this land meaning the land of Canaan. And the remainder of the psalm reminds us that God was faithful to that promise. Faithful to Abraham, and then faithful to Isaac, and then faithful to Jacob, and then faithful to Jacob's sons, the, people, the, men, the sons of Israel. And then he was faithful to Joseph, even as Joseph was in captivity. And then he was faithful to his people who were in bondage. And then he was faithful to Moses. And then he was faithful in leading his people out of Egypt by his mighty hand. And then he was faithful in leading them through the wilderness and into the land that he had promised centuries before to give to Abraham as he led his people with singing and rejoicing. And all the while, he was faithful. God has a track record and he can be trusted. And not only is he faithful, he's sovereign. When he makes a plan, he sees it through. And there's nothing that can stand against it. Famines, slavery, gods of Egypt, foreign powers, none of them can thwart his plan to work in time and space to bring about his people and his purpose. Egypt couldn't thwart him. The people's failures couldn't thwart him. Heat or cold, lack of food and water in the wilderness couldn't thwart him. Conquering all obstacles with joy and singing, he brought his people out, brought him through the exodus and into the land promised to Abraham. He is faithful, he is sovereign. And here we are, thousands of years later, far removed in time and place, the wide majority of us have no traceable genealogy to the Jewish people. But this is your history too. It's my history. Not by some inherent right, by blood, but rather we are grafted in. We're adopted in by a God who in His infinite love and vast creativity has invited us to His table. And He says that this too is our history. Indeed, in short order, we come to his table where we continue to remember that God is faithful and sovereign. We remember that God's promise to Abraham was that through him, all peoples of the earth would be blessed. So through Abraham's line, God sent forth his son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live, but also to die 
that he might lead many through another exodus. Not out of bondage in Egypt, but rather out of slavery to sin and death. And into a life eternal with him, marked with singing and joy. And Jesus is faithful and he's sovereign. He remains so. He remained true to his father. He remained true to his calling. There was nothing that could stand in his way to seeing his purposes come to pass. Not the Romans, not betrayal, not sin, not even death, not the tomb. This he went through out of his love for you and for me, that we might be his people, that we would know that he is faithful and sovereign. But in the courses of our day-to-day lives, the responsibilities, the changes, the struggles, the bills, the sins, the disappointments, we tend to forget, don't we? At least I do. Forget that He is faithful and sovereign. We fail to keep our intentions and our word. Other people at times do the same to us and we imply that to God. Problems arise and we wonder whether the Lord really will come through. Can He really be trusted? Has He forgotten us? Lord, we look at the manifold and sundry problems of the world around us. It seems hopeless and we wonder where it's all heading. We ask, is there any hope at all? Is there any future? And we forget God. We forget who He is. We forget who we are in Him. And as we forget, the praise evaporates and the joy dries up. But on the night He was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ gave us a continual way to remember. And He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you, for this is My blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the word here that Luke uses in his gospel to describe this scene is anamnesis. Anamnesis, which means unforgetting. Amnesia is when someone has lost their memory and literally does not know who he or she is. Anamnesis is the opposite of that condition. It's the unforgetting that causes a person to remember and to regain an identity. So as we gather this evening around the table, the Lord's table, we're in the process of remembering and refocusing upon our Lord. We might call it repatterning. It's my understanding that when someone has had a serious head injury, he or she has lost the ability to move and then has to relearn how to walk over again. The therapist will then go and begin to move the arms and legs of that patient over and over again in a particular way which instills in the patient's nervous system the building blocks of autonomous movement. It's a process called repatterning. 
The patient's brain and neural pathways are being reprogrammed so that the patient can ultimately regain, regain the use of that which has become impaired. In many ways, we are impaired. We forget what God has done for us. We forget that we are His people. But in the Lord's Supper, we unforget. We remember. And my deep prayer for us this evening as we gather, that you would remember. You'd remember that Jesus is faithful and sovereign. That He loves you with a love that led Him even to death and through it. That He's leading you out of sin and death and into the glories with Him that will last into all eternity. That He has not forgotten you. That He will not forget you. And that He will see you through. That's my prayer for us as we come to the Lord's table. He is faithful. He is sovereign. And He doesn't forget. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. They took your life. They could not take your breath.